Hello, and welcome to Magic is Real, a podcast focused on the fascinating world of near-death experiences, spirit communication, and all things metaphysical and spiritual. The mission of this project is to share messages of hope and inspiration with others, and to spread the word that death is only an illusion. Thank you for being here with an open heart and mind. I wish you peace, light, and love always. Everybody. Welcome to Magic is Real. I'm Shannon Torrance and I'm your host. I'm just back from a great trip to Nashville. I'm a little stuffed up. I had the best time, um, but I am so enthusiastic to bring to you today my beautiful friend, Barbara Bartolome. Sorry, I always pronounce it different ways. Uh, Barbara Bartolome, who is a lovely person. She is the founder and director of IAN Santa Barbara. IAN stands for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. She is a mother. She is a wife. She has had one of the most extraordinary near-death experiences I've ever heard. I've known about her for years and years before I started even doing this podcast. I watched all of her videos, and I knew that one day we would meet um, I assumed she would be busy. I wasn't sure to how to reach her. And fortuitously, she reached out to me on Facebook, um, not knowing how she knew me either. Um, but it turned out that it was, I believe it was kismet um, to have her here. And so grateful, Barbara, because you've shared your story in so many ways on so many platforms. And it's just wonderful and an honor to have you take the time to share it with us again. And every time you tell the story, different aspects and insights are revealed. So I just want to thank you and welcome. Thank you, Shannon. It's so nice for you to be doing this podcast. And yes, I've been on a lot of others, but I think this one is really, truly connects with my heart because I do think magic is real. And I do think that the world has a lot of things that we don't understand that look like magic out there. And so I'm really excited about being here today and telling my story. I feel it's a gift that I can give to other people. And that's why I don't mind being on whatever podcast wants me to be on it. And I've been on the NBC Today show and US News and World Report did a wonderful article about my NDE. And you know, it, I even literally talk about it in the grocery store. I just came back from the grocery store and the, and the grocery guy, you know, wanted to hear all about it while he was packing my groceries up. So I almost missed the start of the um, podcast today, but I was like, oh, I got to run. So that's amazing. Yeah. How did he know that you had a near-death um, experience? I have a little pin that I wear normally, and I don't have it right here, um, but it says um, NDE on it right here. And he had seen it on my um, collar. I always put it on my collar right there. And it says NDE. I had them made and um, I sell them at the conferences and stuff. And he asked me why I didn't have my NDE pin on today. And he had seen me a number of times and, and I said, well, I forgot it. And, and so he said, what does it stand for? And so then I, I launch into what it, you know, what it's about. And everybody is always like, either totally amazed or they will immediately say, oh my God, I died when I was four or my mother had that experience. Or, you know, I literally probably 70% of the people I talk to will say, oh my gosh, I know this person that had uh, death experience as well. They don't ever talk about it. And so 
it's, you know, for me, I feel like I didn't talk about it for 12 years, but I, when I, once I did open up to it and assimilated it into my life and realized how big it was and what a big, wonderful message it is, then I realized that the gift that was given to me needs to be given away to others. And I need to give that gift away. And I never want to be paid for it. I think that it was amazing that I got that gift. And so I'm never going to want to be paid for it. I literally travel all over the United States to do in-person talks when COVID's not happening. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't care about money. I don't, that's not my, that's not my gig. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And such a wonderful idea to wear a conversation starter to spread the word and if somebody doesn't want to hear about it they won't ask and that's fine but also to find that commonality so i love that so i love to start with you starting with your childhood who you are as a human being specifically what was your spiritual what were your spiritual attitudes or beliefs before this happened to you so as a child my parents did not go to church my grandmother did, my mom's mother, but she lived 50 miles away from us. And so I wasn't guided towards church, but the backstory uh, will happen in a couple minutes and I'll tell you, I believed that there was a God. I literally, my mom would come in to say goodnight. We had five children in our family and um, she would come in to say goodnight and I would be talking you know laying in my bed talking and my mom was like who are you talking to and I would look at her kind of sheepishly and say God and she would look at me like okay you know and then you know kiss me goodnight and not know what to think of me and nobody else in the family was like me and <clears throat> I had a lot of intuition as a child and the phone would ring and my mom would be walking across the living room to go answer it and I would say, Mama, it's Grandma. It's Grandma Kazi. And she would look at me like, what? And go over and answer the phone. And it would be the grandmother that I had said that it was, my dad's, my dad's grand, my dad's mother. So, um, or it would, I would say it was the neighbor. You know, I would say who it was and she would just go, you know, she didn't know what to think of it. And when I was about five years old, I was standing on a street corner with her. And I remember this incident quite well. Um, we were holding hands. Um, she was holding my little sister's hand. My little sister was three and I was five and we were never supposed to, you know, take our hands away from her hand. We were always supposed to hang on to her. And <clears throat> I took my hand out of her hand and I covered my face and she looked down at me with, you know, like, what are you doing? And I said through my hands, they're going to crash. And right when I said that, the car that was coming from behind us to the through to the intersection that was in front of us we were standing right on the corner going across the street um it ran the red light and it crashed into a t-boned into a car in front of us and pushed it across the intersection luckily away from us and um my mom was so freaked out that i had just you know said that they're going to crash not knowing this car was coming from behind me um <clears throat> she let go of my little sister's hand and she took both my shoulders and she shook me and she said, don't you ever tell anyone that you can do that. Don't you ever talk about that. And so it was freaking her out as a, as a child. I, I think I freaked her out a lot. And then growing up, I had a lot of other incidents that freaked out friends of mine. And, uh, you know, there were, there were quite a few of them that my friends actually remember. So 
what ended up happening was that um, when I was 55 years old, I was at a conference for IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, the big that I am part of the group of, and I have a, a group here in Santa Barbara. And there was a speaker there. Her name was PMA Chatwater. She's quite well known. She's done maybe six books on near-death experiences, including, I'm looking at it right now, the big book of near-death experiences and all sorts of ones you know, that she's done beyond that. And um, she was speaking about the after effects that near-death experiencers have that they've done research on. And I was in the you know, group of 400 people that were listening. And as she was talking, I was going, I don't understand. If I had my near-death experience at age 31, why would I have these after effects that she's talking about all the way back to my childhood? That doesn't make any sense to me. So I was pretty new with investigating my own near-death experience. It was probably only like the first or second conference I'd ever gone to with the IONS organization. I hadn't started my group yet in Santa Barbara. I'd kind of barely come out of my shell with my near-death experience. And so I waited until she was done with um, people came up to her after the talk and I finally got a chance to talk with her. And I said, I don't understand. Why would I have the things that you're saying are after effects all the way back to my early childhood? Because I didn't have my near-death experience till I was 31. And she took my hands and she was so sweet. And she said, my dear, I think you ought to talk with your family and ask some questions because you probably had something that happened to you when you were young, but you haven't been told about it. And I must admit, honestly, I thought I didn't make a face or anything, but I thought, oh, brother, you know, she thinks I had a second one. I mean, one earlier in life than my 31 year old one. <laughs> and then at that conference, I kept thinking of things that were triggering me to remember that uh, something might have happened. And it was things like my mom would say, you know, in a quiet moment, I'm really glad that you stayed, Barbie. We thought we'd lost you at one point, but I'm really glad you stayed. And I thought she was talking about like I got lost in the grocery store or something. I, I didn't know what she was talking about as a child and I never asked questions. Well, it turns out that my older brother disclosed to me that when I was 18 months old, I had some sort of a high fever. He doesn't know if it was chicken pox or the flu or what it was, but he said that uh, both parents were very uh, anxious about the situation. My mom was very pregnant with my little sister was about to be born. And uh, my older sister was downstairs with a nanny lady that was helping with the three other children that were already in the family. And my older brother is 10 years older than me. So he would have been about 12 years old, almost 12 years old when this happened. And he said that the fire department, which my, my dad had called because I'd gone into convulsions and I'd had a really high fever and then I went into convulsions and I stopped breathing. So my dad was panicking, calling the fire department. My mom was holding me and crying and, and my brothers were there and my, little, my older sister was downstairs and my little sister wasn't born yet. And um, what ended up happening was that um, the fire department told my, my mom and my dad to get ice and to put me into tepid bath water, just neutral bath water, and then slowly add ice cubes to slowly lower my body temperature. Otherwise, your little body would go into shock. And so that would, you know, exacerbate the situation. So my mom sent my two brothers 
over to the neighbor's houses to get more ice because we just had one tray and they came back and my my oldest brother came back first and uh he handed the ice to my mom and she had me in the tepid bath water and um, she was holding you know my head above the water and she started adding the ice and he said that as he was watching he said i had turned soft purple and i was completely lifeless and my mom was sobbing over the top of me my dad was yelling on the phone you know in the living room and uh he said he has as he watched i all of a sudden came back to life on my own he said you took you arched backwards and you took a deep breath and then you changed from purple to red immediately and he said then after you took the deep breath you started crying and he said you were just you know wah 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 and he said he never has been so happy to hear me cry as you know a little baby and um he said that the ambulance people came in a minute or so later and wrapped me up in a blanket and took me off to the hospital and i was there for four days or something and he said he he was told by the parents um and my sister and my other older brother, all three of them were told never to talk about it, never to talk to me about it. And so he said, you know, it, I think it's time for me to tell you this happened. And he didn't even know that the one that the MDE that had happened to me at age 31, I never told anybody in my family. I only told my husband that I'm married to and my ex-husband that I was married to at the time it happened. So I didn't have anybody else that knew about it. And so when my brother told me, um, he was quite surprised when I turned around and told him about my age 31 one. And now he is a complete believer in near-death experiences and everything. He says, Barb, you, you know, you opened the door to that for me. And, and that's amazing. And he's, he's like 76 years old and, you know, approaching the time when his life might end. And so he said, that's just a huge gift. So what ended up happening to me on my regular near-death experience, the age 31 one, was that I was married to someone. Um, I'd gotten married up in Oregon uh, initially to a guy who I went to high school with. And I had a really high paying job at the telephone company. And I started a family. I had a son. I bought a house at age 21, a brand new three bedroom house up in Oregon. I was like ready to just like start life and do it well. And the guy that I married um saw the dollar signs that i was able to earn and he decided that he didn't want to have to work and so he had a little injury at his work and then he decided he didn't he wanted to play that out and didn't want to go back to work and so he was doing car racing and with his friends and stuff and i was just saying you know look you you know we can't support this household and the new baby with you not working you need to go to work and and after a year or so of telling him that he needed to buckle down, um, I finally said, well, do you want to move back in with your parents and not be married anymore? Is that what you want to do? And he said, yeah. So um, he moved back and um, I sold the house and, you know, split it with him. And, and then a couple of years later, I was working um, down at the Oregon coast and I was working for a big um, company that had a, it was a big, um, timeshare company and the guy who had built the timeshares the general contractor um i i actually was working for the telephone company still and he asked me to come down there and work for the timeshare company so he had an interest in me we ended up getting married and moving to santa barbara where he was uh, had a house and was from had been from before he moved to oregon 
And so when I got down here after, and I got married to him and everything, what I didn't realize and what I didn't, didn't have enough time to check him out in the course of the time that I was dating him, um, he didn't show me that he was really aggressively abusive. And I got down here away from my family, away from my friends and isolation and abuse. So when he would get upset at work and he would bring it home and he would be mad if I had, you know, one little thing out of place. And it was just totally uncalled for type of anger and abuse. But I guess it had stemmed from something in his childhood with his father. And so I didn't know about all that. And I got trapped in the situation and I was trying really hard to make a change to his life and help him out and get him to get counseling and you know, asked him to go to a pastor of a church and try to, you know, work it out there and nothing that I tried to support him with would work. And he just would go back to the anger and the abuse. So my son from my previous marriage was, was, you know, in, he was like eight years old when I had my near-death experience and he'd seen a lot already with this person. And I tried really hard and uh, to get him to change. And so what ended up happening was he hurt my back um, it caused, uh, what he did caused, uh, the disc in my lower back, my L5 S1 to burst. So the fragments of the disc, um, was the possibility that they might have, um, nicked the spinal cord because after the injury, I pretty quickly couldn't walk anymore. And I was 31 years old and I had had a baby, um, only a month before the injury. And um, by the time that uh, I saw a doctor, um, the first doctor said that I wouldn't walk again. And then a friend of mine that worked at the place that I worked at here in Santa Barbara um, said, you should go get somebody else's opinion, like a neurosurgeon or something. So I went to a second doctor and it was a neurosurgeon and he kind of was cocky and he was kind of looking at my x-rays up on a wall and you know my cat scans and pet scans and he was kind of hmm. and then he said I can fix this and I of course wanted to believe that because at 31 years old with two kids and you know this abusive situation I kind of needed to walk and I kind of needed to be normal again and so um, they scheduled he scheduled a surgery for December of 1987 and he brought on board an orthopedic surgeon. So it was gonna be a neurosurgeon and an orthopedic surgeon that were gonna do the surgery together. And they had me go to a local hospital and they wanted me to check in the day before they were gonna do the 7 a.m. surgery. So they wanted me to check in at like a four o'clock the day before. So I went there, checked in, and they wanted to have a myelogram done, which is injection of iodine dye they did it right here in the back of my neck. They just did a small local in, infusion to um, numb the area. Then they put the dye into my spinal cord with a needle. And they then told me, I was laying on an x-ray table, you have to lay absolutely still because if you move at all during this procedure, you can have headaches for months afterwards. So I'm a good kid, I'm like not gonna move. And so I'm laying on my back on the table and they start tipping the table. The x-ray tech that was in the room, there was two of them. One guy was putting his finger on the button, tipping the table, and he had his body like right next to the table, right where I could see his face and everything. And then the other guy was at the top of the table, um, at the head of the table, and he had a monitor and he was going to be watching as the die went down my spine because there was a 
you know, x-ray machine above the body. And so they started tipping the table and um, both the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon were in the room and so was a nurse. And those two doctors were just talking to each other, leaning against a wall behind the guy who was next to the table. And uh, the nurse was over at a table by the door doing something, I'm not sure. And um, the table started moving and <clears throat> You know, I didn't have any alarm worries or fear or anything of this procedure. I didn't hurt or anything, but immediately I started feeling funny and I thought, well, I wonder if I'm supposed to be feeling like this, but I couldn't see the two doctors and the guy who was right next to me, he was talking to the other guy. And unfortunately he was talking about their weekend plans and they weren't paying attention. And, um, I never held it against them. I never sued anybody, but what ended up happening was that um, he was pushing the wrong button on the table and he was lowering my head instead of raising it. So the dye that they just injected into the back of my neck, into my spinal cord was going right into my brain. And um, I felt really funny at first, like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm going to faint or something. I hope this isn't, what's going on? You know, and I was, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to interrupt them. But by the time that I realized maybe I should say something because I, I've got a feeling I'm going to faint. Um, it had gone too far into my brain and I actually couldn't speak and I couldn't reach my hand out to touch them. And then I felt incredible panic and my eyes were rolling to the back of my head and I was laying there and I was feeling complete panic. And all of a sudden I started hyperventilating and that's where you're breathing really fast. And I was going, <laughs> and that's what caused the two guys to stop talking. And the guy who was next to the table he leaned over my face and he saw my eyes were rolling to the back of my head. I was trying really hard to keep them forward, but they, they were just out of control. And uh, so then he leaned back to see where his thumb was. And that's the last thing that I saw was his face reacts to where his thumb was on the side of the machine. He made this face like, oh my God. And he just went like that. And that was the last thing I saw. And right then my eyes shut in my body and one second later i was up on the ceiling up above my body completely calm i had been panicked in my body but i was just calm as could be looking down at my body and i said in my head not obviously out loud huh if i'm up here and my body's down there and he's calling code blue i think i just died and you know i was just like whoa and right, right when I said that, I felt this sense of a being that was next to me. And the being felt like to me, what I would feel like God would, would feel like. It felt like totally accepting me, loving me, wrapping me in the warmest blanket of, of love and kindness. And it just, it just felt like, wow, that, that's amazing. That's gotta be God. So in my head again i started talking to him and i said i really need to go back into my life i need to be there to help my children if i'm not there to protect my children i don't know what will happen to them and they won't grow up to be the good human beings that they're capable of being to leave them with my husband and for him to be the way that he was i i just knew that abuse was going to happen and so I was saying that as I was watching what everybody was doing down below. And of course it went into panic. The doctors were yelling for everybody to do things. The, 
oxygen cart came in and this lady brought an oxygen cart in and they put an oxygen mask on my face. And prior to that, the two x-ray techs had been doing CPR on me and they were doing chest compressions. One person was doing chest compressions. The other one was blowing in my mouth. And then when the oxygen cart came in, they stopped blowing in my mouth and they just switched off every two minutes or so doing the chest compressions. They would trade places. You know, one person would do it, then the next person would do it. And then um, this guy came in with a small box and he laid it on this um, ledge that was next to the x-ray table um, where the wall was. And I didn't know what he was doing. The nurse that had been in the room was on the phone calling for the DPW unit stat and yelling in the phone. The two doctors were still standing back against the wall, but they were calling out orders and stuff. And um, the guy who brought the box in, I watched him as he put it on this ledge and he took these white little round things and he was peeling off the backs of them and he was putting them on my chest. And I didn't know what that was. And I was watching everything. And I was kind of talking to the being as I was watching, saying how much I wanted to go back. And in the middle of it, <clears throat> I said, what is that he's doing? And I was watching the guy with the box that was over on the ledge. And at that second, when I said that up to the being, I was moved down from the ceiling, down in front of the box. So the box was like right in front of me. And it had this little rectangular um, glass window that was dark green. And I watched as the guy's hand went in front of my face like that. And he went over and he clicked this toggle switch. And this little green light went in that screen. And it started going straight across in a line. And the machine was going beep. <laughs> well, I had never seen a heart monitor. I didn't know what that was. And I was watching go across in the line and then it turned and it went back again and it started going straight across the line again. And the third time it was going across, all of a sudden I went, oh, I think that's supposed to be going up and down. That's my heart, it's not working, it stopped. And the second I thought that, then I was back up on the ceiling again, like the being had put me down there to show me what I'd asked for. And then when I got it, I got to go back up. So I then, um you know was was saying again how much i wanted to go back and the neurosurgeon said to the orthopedic surgeon too much time has passed she's going to be brain dead we need to do something and the orthopedic surgeon said stand clear and everybody that was by the front of the table stepped backwards and gave him room and he took two steps forward took his fist from behind his back and he just went wham and he just smacked it right in the center of my chest well, I watched my body respond to that on the table. It kind of went, you know, like that and kind of jerked, but I didn't go back into it. And right when that happened, the being up on the ceiling finally said something to me. I had been saying how much I wanted to go back. And finally it said, but if you go back, you'll still be in your marriage. What will you do? and showed me these little film clips that just went flash, 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 of all these incidents in the years that I'd been married to this person of the abuse, all of the pushing me, shoving me, kicking me, all the things that he'd been doing. So then I was given all this time and I started thinking about all the times that I had tried to help change him, like the letter that I wrote, 
you know, doctor that I took him to that I spoke to it and said, you know, he's got a problem with abuse. And, and the doctor said, you know, you need to get counseling. And so I took him to a counselor and he went like three or four sessions. He would always apologize after he did the abuse. And sometimes like, you know, want to take me out to dinner or buy me a teddy bear or something. And, but it, you know, I would tell him that doesn't make up for the abuse that you do. You stop, you've got to stop hitting and you've got to stop doing this. You've got to control your anger. And so all the things that I'd done, I thought about it all. And at the end of thinking about all the stuff that I had tried to do for helping him, then I realized really huge, you know, he's not going to change. Uh, there's no way I can get him to change this. I've done everything I can. And so then I said to the being, if you let me go back, I promise you that I will get strong enough to leave him. And the second I said the word him, now this is all just right after that first precardial thump, but up there on the ceiling, it time stretched out and it seemed like 10 minutes that all that stuff happened. But I'm pretty sure that the doctor did two precardial thumps, one right after another. And I had this interesting stretch out of time up there, but I think it was one right after another down below. He did the second precardial thump and that one restarted my heart. And I literally just shut my eyes up above and opened my eyes and I was back into my body with the oxygen mask on my face. And the guy still had his fist on my chest and he lifted it up and I spoke into the oxygen mask and I said, what just happened? And the nurse leaned over me and said, stop, don't talk. We need to stabilize you. And so for, I don't know, 20 minutes, they did who knows what to stabilize me. They finally took the oxygen mask off entirely. And then I blurted out, what just happened? I was up on the ceiling and I could see and hear everything that was going on down below. And the neurosurgeon who was standing next to the table with the orthopedic surgeon, he went, oh, brother. And that, you know, age 31, just having that happen, I'd never heard of the near-death experience. I had no idea that that was possible. I never meditated. I wasn't into that. I was just a mom with two kids trying to, you know, deal with this abusive husband working full, I was working full time. And it was like, what? And I said, no, I was up on the ceiling and I could see him hear everything. And I then said what each person had been doing and what people had said. And then I also said what he had said about you know, too much time has passed. She's going to be brain dead. We need to do something. I used his exact quote. Oh my gosh. The whole time I was talking, he clenched his fists and he held them like this and he pulled them up next to his body like this. And he was going, and then he went, I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. And he stormed out of the room. <laughs> but the orthopedic surgeon stayed and so did the x-ray techs and the lady who'd brought in oxygen card and the guy who brought in the heart monitor and the nurse. So there was about seven or eight people in the room. And I then, you know, was kind of like, what, what next? And the and orthopedic surgeon, he said, tell me again what you saw. Tell me again, how did you feel? What did it feel like? Uh, tell me again, you know, and so he was really interested in finding out all the details about it and everybody stayed there and listened. And then they ended up putting me on a gurney, sending me up to my room. And when I would ask anybody like a nurse that came into my vitals or something, they would look at my chart and go, of course they hadn't been in the room, but 
they would look at my chart and go, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'd say, well, what happened, um, you know, during my myelogram last night? What, 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 what happened during that? I don't, I don't see anything. I don't know what you're talking about. So the next morning they came and got me and they did the surgery on my back and it was successful. And I was in the hospital for another four days. No one would talk to me about the myelogram and what happened. And when I saw my husband, my then husband, and I told him what had happened, he went, oh, that couldn't have happened. You probably hallucinated that. Well, I've never done drugs. I don't drink alcohol. I've never done bad stuff. I don't lie. I'm not a hallucinator. I don't, it's like, what? So when he said that, it closed me down so much that I was afraid to tell other people. And so I didn't say anything to anybody for about 12 years. I, I kept it inside. It took me about three years to get safely away from him. I had to file a restraining order and a lawyer that um, I hired helped me to get safely away from him. And um, about uh, two years later, I had 206 things in a little book next to my bed. They were character traits that I was looking for. If I ever chose to date anybody again, I was going to examine them and make sure that they were going to be a good person, that they had good character traits, and I wasn't going to get sucked into anything like I had just been in. And it was really funny that my son, who was then in eighth grade, met my current husband's daughter, who was in seventh grade, and they had us go to a movie with them. So they made us sit next to each other. And they and we ended up going out with the kids. Um, he had a boy and a girl. I had a boy and a girl. And uh, over about a four-month time span, I looked at my list of 206 things and looked at this guy and watched his behaviors and with the kids and with me and everything. And I said, wow, it's the right guy. So we got married and we've been married 30 years, happily, wonderfully, and he is the right guy. He was the guy I was writing about, and it's pretty amazing that the manifestation occurred. It's in such a safe way for me to get, you know, the good guy. So um, I don't hate my ex-husband. I've talked to him a number of times in a polite, friendly, kind way, and um, I wish him well, but I, I know that his... Um, his daughters don't want to have, he has a daughter from a previous marriage before he married me, and they don't want to have much to do with him because of his behaviors and his attitudes that he kept all through the years. So um, I feel sorry for him. And uh, the near-death experience, you know, took me like 12 years before I finally talked about it. And the only reason why I did, I, I told my current husband about it, but, you know, anybody outside, like my family or anything, I, I wasn't talking about it. And it turned out that a nurse at the hospital in Santa Barbara was a friend of mine, and she was having a death happening in her family imminently. And she was, uh, we were at a gymnastics practice for our daughters. And uh, she, you know, was very upset over what was going to be happening soon. And it, I somehow it just triggered for me that I needed to tell her my near death experience. And I didn't even know it was called a near death experience. I'd never like tried to find it back then it was like he'd have to go to a library you didn't have the internet to search for stuff and I you know didn't it wasn't a high priority with kids in my life and so 
um, she was the one who told me that it was called a near-death experience and there was a lot of information online and I could look for it. And uh, that's, you know, opened up a big door for me because then I ended up having my own group here in Santa Barbara that I bring people that are from all over to come and talk about their near-death experience. And in fact, in October, um, I have a board member that's a doctor here in town, and I've actually given a grand rounds talk at the hospital here in Santa Barbara about near-death experiences in front of like 60 doctors and nurses. So, you know, the times have changed over the last, you know, 20 something years, but I'm having a doctor speaking in October and he's from Colorado. And um, if, I, if I'm quoting it right, uh, he was about uh, 14 years old when he fell 10 stories and had massive uh, damage to his body. And he had a near-death experience in that uh, situation. And he never told anybody about it. And he became a doctor himself, an orthopedic surgeon himself. And he's going to be talking at my IONS group here in Santa Barbara in October. For the very first time, he's gonna be talking in front of an audience and talking about his near-death experience that he had when he was young and how it motivated him to do what he did with his life in becoming an, an orthopedic surgeon. So it's an amazing you know, gift to your life. To me, it got me out of the situation that I was in and it gave me the ability to find someone you know, that I would be able to live with for 30 years and, uh, you know, someone who would be loving and kind that I would want in my life. And so, it, and, and on top of that, the intuition that has happened over the years has been super amazing as well. And it's really freaked my husband out a few times, my current husband, because like, when we got married, um, we decided that we wouldn't have another child because we each had two and we, so we had four all together and um, we had a vasectomy and my husband had a vasectomy and about, um, oh, I don't know, maybe four months after the vasectomy, I said to him, you know what, I, I feel like I'm pregnant and I was and the intuition was real and about six months into the pregnancy, I got this hit right here that I was going to have an 11 pound baby, which is pretty darn big. And my previous two were seven and a half and eight and a half pounds. So this was a whopper and I was scared. So my husband that I'm married to now said, well, you know, if you feel this is real, then why don't you talk to your OBGYN about it? And see what he says. And, you know, you've already had your ultrasound, but maybe he'll do another one. Well, the doctor completely dismissed it, my OBGYN. He said, no, no, you're just scaring yourself. Don't worry about that. That's not a possibility. You're not, you're not having an 11 pound baby. So I went back another time to another visit to him. And I said, look, you know, I have my husband that I'm currently married to is seven feet tall. And uh, he was almost 11 pounds at birth. And so I said, you know, my sister is six foot three, I'm five foot nine, my husband's seven feet tall. It's not out of the question that I could have an 11 pound baby. And I really like to check on this because I really feel that it's, it's possibility. He again said, no, 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 you just no, you're just scaring yourself, forget it. So the last visit before I was gonna have the baby, Victor, my husband said, why don't you tell him you're a near-death experiencer? Just, you know, level with him, that you know that this is gonna be it. 
So I did. And he said, if you want to keep talking about this, why don't you find yourself another doctor? And it was like a week before I was due. And so I was working full time and had four children. I'm supposed to go out and find another doctor that wants to take me the last week of my pregnancy. I don't think so. So I just kind of sent the prayer up and said, God, I know you'll take care of it. I know I'm, I'm in good hands. So I got to the hospital the day of the birth and I um, got into the stirrups and the doctor walked in and sat in this little rolly chair and said, push, which I did. And the baby's head was born. And that's when he realized that the rest of the baby wasn't going to be able to come out because it was too big. And so he panicked, rolled his chair backwards and yelled down the hallway of the hospital. Is there another doctor in the near vicinity? I need assistance stat. And nobody came. So he turned around and faced us. And my husband was at the head of the table and so was the nurse. And I could see him too. And he said, I'm going to have to break its shoulders to get it out. Here he had not listened to me. And here he had my baby in the midst of being born and the baby wasn't going, you can't push the head back in. You have to deliver once the head is out through the birth canal. Should have done a C-section. So I just sent up a huge prayer in the midst of delivering an 11 pound baby. And I said, God, please. I tried to tell him what you told me and he didn't listen. Please, God, please. So he delivered that baby. It was 11 pounds. And at the birth, they do this APGAR score. And my previous babies, they do it. They rank them between one and 10. And one is right next to death and 10 is perfectly healthy. My other babies had been nines at birth and tens five minutes later. This baby was a one at birth and a three at the five minute mark. So um, it was pretty scary. He's now 28 years old, perfectly fine and six foot six. So, so did they have I did, to break his shoulders. They didn't have to break his shoulders. And I don't think that was the doctor's capacity. I think that, you know, I got some help from the other side because that how do you get an 11 pound baby out of that size of a like you don't you just that that just doesn't happen so yeah it was um certainly i think another one of the interventions from the other side that i've had throughout my whole life and so but my husband um currently husband has you know no qualms about listening to me when i tell him something is going to happen you know like oh there's going to be a car crash or whatever and one of the things that happened recently about five years ago actually was we were driving back from San Francisco and I had done four talks about my near-death experience at four different groups up in San Francisco. We'd been up there for about five days. I was really happy to be coming home to Santa Barbara. And my husband was driving our van and we came up to this area that's north of Santa Barbara by about 30 miles. It's called the Gaviota Coastline. It's where the big giant oil spill happened that caused Earth Day to be created years and years ago, back in the seventies. And um, so we came, and the, and the freeway comes from inland and it hits the ocean and it curves to the left and it goes down along the ocean till it gets to the northern part of Santa Barbara and right into Santa Barbara, it's the 101. So we came around that corner and it was just huge gusting winds. And it has uh, signs up there that say, you know, danger, high wind area. Well, it was really a high wind area that night. And um, I was, laying down in my seat backwards. And I know that's kind of dangerous to do, but I was laying backwards, I was tired. I was kind of like looking out the window at the stars and the moon and Victor was driving and the wind was gusting against the car. And all of a sudden this big gust hit the side of the car 
And as I was laying backwards, I was watching him with the steering wheel and he was struggling with the steering wheel and he was just going, you know, and I'm like, ah, so after he got it under control, the gust kind of died down. I said, Victor, I don't think we should do 65 miles an hour. I think maybe we should slow down to 50 because, you know, those high winds, that, that could be really dangerous. We could flip the van over. And he said, yeah, I think you're right. So he, he uh, slowed down and we decided to do 50 miles an hour. So then um, we're going along at 50 and all of a sudden in my ear on my side of the, of the uh, where the ocean is, this little voice goes, danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. And I'm like, huh? So I sit up in my seat and I, you know, adjusted my seatbelt so I'm nice and tight in it. So in case we are going to hit something, I'm going to be safe. And I turned to look at Victor and I said, you know how I sometimes hear from the other side? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I just heard danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. So something, I don't know if it's a tree that's been blown over. I don't know if it's uh, an animal in the road. I don't know if it's a car. I have no idea what it is, but we have to slow down more. So let's do 30 miles an hour. And Victor looked at me and went, 30 miles an hour, Barbara, we're on the freeway. And I turned and looked through the back of our van and I, no cars, no lights, no car lights. And I'm like, what? So I said, Victor, there's nobody behind us. Nobody's going to care whether we're doing 30 miles an hour. If you see somebody coming and you feel that it's better to be doing 50, then go ahead and speed up until they pass us, but then slow back down because we're going to need to be slowed down to not hit whatever it is. And he goes, okay, I can do that. So we're going along at 30 for like maybe, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes and no car ever catches up to us. That's the freeway that comes from the north into Santa Barbara. That's usually totally lots, lots of cars. <clears throat> and so we come around this corner and up in the ahead in the dark, we see a single police car's lights spinning around. And after we go around that corner and we see the police car, I realize that's where the danger is. It's like hits, they always hits me right here. And so I'm really intently looking through the windshield, trying to see, you know, what is the danger? What, what's the police car doing? What's, what's happening? So as we get closer, we're doing 30 miles an hour. The first thing that we realize is that the police car isn't off the freeway arresting somebody. His car is squarely stopped in the slow lane blocking it. So there's a fast lane on the left side of him that we can go around him. But why is he stopped blocking the slow lane? No cars in front of him, nothing else around him. And there's no cop inside the police car, neither is he anywhere within the lights of his car. There's no street lights up there, so you can't see anything else. It's really dark. But in the range of his lights up on top and his, and his front light headlights, there's no cop. So my husband starts to change lanes about 50 yards behind the police car. I don't know my, my measurements too much, but I would say half a football field behind the police car. And... Uh, he starts to change lanes and whoever it was from the other side decides to grab both of my upper arms. And I, I kid you not, <clears throat> they literally grabbed my upper arms and I saw nose to nose, a shimmer of a face and they screamed 10 miles an hour. And I was so freaked out that they were touching me and that I'd seen this shimmer 
that I echoed that and said, 10 miles an hour, really, you know, fast to Victor. And he then slowed down from 30 to when we got to the police car level with the police car, we were doing 10 miles an hour. So we slid past the police car and we got about 20, 30 feet beyond it. And that's when our lights finally lit up the semi truck that was across both lanes of the freeway had flipped over on its side. The dirty bottom of the truck was facing us. It was kind of diagonal across the two lanes. <clears throat> and we were heading right for the cab of the truck, which is where the gas tanks are. And luckily, we were only doing 10 miles an hour. And so Victor swerved off the side of the road into the gravel. There was a, a guardrail there, didn't hit the guardrail or anything, and went around the front of the truck in the gravel on the left side. And on the far side, I looked up on top of the truck and the, <clears throat> the police officer was standing up on top of the truck with his legs spread apart, kind of bracing against the wind that was blowing. And that's why he hadn't heard us. His back was to us where we were coming from. So he didn't know we were coming. And he made this look like <gasps> that, that <laughs> there was a car going past the truck. And then Victor continued driving. And I immediately started saying thank you to God to the other side. I said, thank you so much for the truck driver's life, for the police officer's life, for my life, for Victor's life. I know you're here. My door is always open to you. Thank you for helping. I'm here for you. When you put somebody in front of me, then I want to help. And if I have something I can do to help someone, then I will definitely do that. And so I was sitting there talking to the side, saying how much, you know, I love them and, you know, thank you for helping. And then Victor is completely quiet. And it's like 10 minutes later, we're still heading towards Santa Barbara. And he goes, Barbara, how is it that you're able to do that? If I had not just seen that unfold, I would have never, ever believed that whole story. He said, well, how do you do that? And I said, Victor, it's not me doing something. It's just me listening to the other side. And I believe that they're there. And I don't know if that's because of the near-death experiences or just my heart knows that they're there. And I said, when, when they tell me something, then I'm going to do it. And so it's always going to be that way, no matter if it's a danger to me or what, I'm going to do what they tell me to do. And so I trust them and I am always thankful to them to, for their helping of me. And so one other story that happened was that I was on State Street in Santa Barbara with my two daughters. I just picked them up in front of a movie theater. They'd gone to a Disney movie. And my 35-year-old my daughter, she's 35 now, but she was in third grade. And um, her big sister was um, five years older. So she was like in eighth grade. And um, <clears throat> it was just after Christmas. And so it was kind of dark. It was like 6 o'clock PM. And I'm right as I, the kids are getting into the side of my van, this guy runs down <clears throat> the center of the street. It's only a one lane street going each way on State Street in Santa Barbara. And he's running right down the middle of it and right by my, my window of my, my van. And I'm like, what is he doing? And then I see four more guys run by. I'm thinking, what are they doing? So I, the car, the car van door closed and the girls were in. So I moved forward to the intersection and I had watched them dodge, you know, cars as they ran through this intersection. And on the far side, <clears throat> right in front of Saks Fifth Avenue, the four guys caught up to the one guy that was in front. They knocked him to the ground 
and two guys kneeled on each side of him and they were just punching the heck out of him. And I was the first one in line at the stoplight. And when the light changed, I moved forward and my mom had been a cop when I was young. And so, and I'm five foot nine and I'm not afraid. And so I rolled my window down and I yelled in my mom's cop voice, stop that right now. There were people walking by on the sidewalk, ignoring the whole thing. And they looked over at me and saw that I was a mom with a van and didn't think I was dangerous. So they went back to punching the guy. And so I put my van into park, got out of it, told my girls to stay inside. And as I started to cross the lane over to where they were, the guy that was behind my van said, hey, lady, what do you think you're doing? And I said, I'm going over to intervene in that situation. You could help me. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to get involved. That pissed me off. So I walked over and there were two guys on each side of him. I just grabbed the sweatshirts of two of the guys, put my head down right between their two heads. And I looked at the other two guys and I said, I said, stop it right now. You're so brave. Use my mom's cop, everything. And the two guys on the far side, holy crud, they stood up and ran. The two guys I had the sweatshirts of, when their two buddies ran, they ran. So the guy is laying on the ground. I help him to stand up. I look at him and say, are you going to be okay? Are you all right? And he calmly, very quietly looks down at his chest. He was already going into shock. And he looks down at his chest and I didn't realize that the red dots that were on his t-shirt were stab wounds from a sharpened screwdriver. One of those four guys, those were all gang members from Oxnard, which is about 40 miles away from us. One of those four guys was being jumped into the gang and he had stabbed the 19-year-old boy's 14-year-old cousin in front of the movie theater to create a disturbance. While my girls were getting into the car, I didn't know it was happening. They chased down the 19-year-old to kill him. So he had more than 30 stab wounds across the front of his chest. So I took his arm, walked him over to the front of my car, put him in my passenger seat. My girls were in the back seat going, and I called 911. And I said, I'm transporting a stabbing victim off of State Street. I'm headed to St. Francis Hospital. My ETA is probably four to five minutes. And the person on the line said, well, you couldn't be transporting the stabbing victim because we already have him in an ambulance. And I said, if you have one in the ambulance and I have one sitting next to me in my van, then there are two stabbing victims. Let the uh, hospital know that. And I hung up on the 911 person. I got him there. He was in deep shock. I'd gotten his name and his age out of him. And uh, <clears throat> they took him in on a gurney and they saved his life. He had a punctured lung. They had to do surgery on him, um, but he lived. And uh, then what was bizarre was we had to be at the hospital for three hours. And it was my third grade daughter who happened to see which of the four guys had the instrument in his hand. And she became the key witness to an attempted murder with gang enhancements. And we had to go to court about two months later and they had stationed an armed guard outside of her third grade classroom for the entire two months because they were afraid that the gang might come to her school 
So she wasn't allowed to go out on the playground or anything else. So here we are at the courthouse with my husband, myself, and I, I mean, my husband, myself, and my daughter. And we have six police officers surrounding us and all the gang members' families are across the uh, aisle area outside the courtroom and they're staring at us and giving us these dirty looks. They knew we were, you know, going to be testifying against their sons. And so we were there two hours. I sent up huge prayers and said, please, God, I did what you wanted me to do and I helped that guy. And so please don't let us, you know, have a situation here, please. <clears throat> so after two hours, the district attorney walked out of the courtroom and he was shaking his head and he was walking towards us. <coughs> Excuse me. And he walked over to us and the six police officers and he said, you can go, you're free to go. And I said, what, why? And he said, well, I've never heard of this happening in my entire career and I've never seen it happen. He said, the guy that your daughter was gonna identify pled guilty, which causes the other three guys to be guilty as well. They'll all be going to prison for attempted murder with gang enhancements. So we got up, walked out and never had any repercussions. I had been praying that whole time I was sitting on that bench going, please, God, please, please. So, you know, whether you call it praying, whether you call it just talking to the other side, it doesn't make any difference. God doesn't care what you call him. You can call him Susie Tidball. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. What he cares about is you, each one of us, and he wants to intervene and help in ways that we all could use in different aspects of our life, but you got to have the door open. So open the door and just, you know, I'm driving along in my car and I say, you know, hey, it's a beautiful day and thank you for the great day. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, oh, I need this, I need that, I need this. It doesn't have to be that. It can just be gratefulness and thankfulness for what you have in your life and who you have in your life. And, you know, asking for help is also good too when you need it. And, but it's just amazing how they come through and, and it's, I feel like, I'm the luckiest girl in the world to have had those two near-death experiences. And then the other bizarre things that have happened all through the years. I mean, I just kind of feel like, wow, I, I, I love my life. And so um, that's, I like telling the stories and it's, you know, it's real. Once somebody sent me a message this week and said, you know, she would been lied to all of her life and that she'd seen my podcast on one of the channels and that, she was afraid that I was lying. I don't lie. And I'm not making this up. And I truly had this happen. And I had a mom who was a police officer. And when I was in my teens, and she used to tell me that if I lied, or if I did anything that I was going to get caught and get in trouble for, that she was going to shoot my butt off. So <clears throat> I learned not to lie. I never did previously. But I just don't do that. I just, it's, this is real. And people need to know that it is real and that it's uh, this kind of connection is available to everybody. Just open the door and just be yourself and live your life. But, you know, have that understanding that they're there, that they want to help you. And, you know, I don't know who it was. Like when I was on the NBC Today show and um, she asked me, you know, well, who was it that was next to you on the ceiling up there? Well, I didn't look because I felt who that was so strongly in my whole being that I didn't need to look. It'd be like if I've been married to my husband currently for 30 years 
if he was talking to me and standing next to me, I wouldn't need to look at him to know who he was. I know who he is. And that was like a million times over when I was up on the ceiling. I knew who that was. I didn't need to look and see if there was a light or there was a vision or anything else. It's who it is. And it, once you figure that out, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no question in your mind anymore. So I really, um, I love talking about my, my story has actually been published in Guidepost magazine, Guidepost book. Uh, it's called The Choir of Angels. And uh, it's uh, available. It's called Witnessing Heaven, True Stories of Transformation from Near-Death Experiences. And they've got five books so far. And my story plus about six others are in this book, but the other books also have multiple people's near-death experience stories in it. And it's pretty cool to be able to, um, you know, read about people's near-death experiences because they've done research at the University of Virginia uh, Division of Perceptual Studies. And they have proven that listening to near-death experience stories or reading about them actually makes changes in the person's belief system and their whole overall outlook of life and afterlife and death and consciousness all gets changed to what I feel, which is there's no heaven and hell. It's just home. We go home. We're loved here. We're loved there. And we come back, I think we come back multiple times. I don't think it's just a one event we come here. I think we get to have multiple experiences to grow our soul. And we plan these different challenges. I probably planned to have my ex-husband to learn, you know, what happened during that abusive situation. And my NDE was probably planned as well, either by me or by them. And it gives gift away to people who are in a situation where they are being abused to understand that, you know, God doesn't want you to be in an abusive situation. He doesn't want you to be there. He wants you to be safe. He wants you to think about that. And he wants you to find your way out of that situation. And that's what I talk about when I talk about my near-death experience is trying to help, you know, give the gift away that's been given to me. And so do you have any questions? I, okay, so I was just going to say, I love the fact that because you speak so often and you're a professional speaker at this point, you <laughs> anticipated all of my questions, which is fantastic, so that I didn't have to prompt you. But I do have a few um, yeah, yeah. that, that kind of came up as I went. Ah, uh, Let's see, where do I want to start? Well, one thing is when you spoke about the doctor, the first doctor's reaction, I really would love to hear your thoughts on why do you think people are so afraid of this? Yeah. Um, back then in 1987, no one was talking about near-death experiences. Um, for me to have been able to quote him and tell what everybody had done in the room, I think freaked him out. And he actually has a history in Santa Barbara of I, I don't want to like discredit him, but there's a lot of people that have spoken to me and like come up to me at my talks that I've done here and said, oh, is that Dr. So-and-so that happened, that that happened to you with? And I'm like, yeah. 
and they're like, oh my gosh, he did that. On. And they'll, they'll download, you know, something that I think he just has an unhealthy, nice, not nice personality. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, to get I so angry. Yeah. And then he got comes really, through. he like, you know, and ran out, ran out of the room and, you know, and then also the next morning after he did the surgery, he was approaching me in the recovery area with the other doctor. And I said to him and, and both the doctors, what happened last night during my myelogram? And he went like this. If you want to talk about that, you need to find somebody else to talk about. I'm here to talk about your surgery. And so, yeah, he also did it two weeks later when I had to go to a checkup afterwards. He walked into the exam room and, you know, I hadn't dressed down because the nurse had said, you need to dress down. And I said, I'm not going to be dressing down. I'm not going to not going to do it. And I had my baby in my arms and uh, he's, you know, little little critter, my little five month, six month old, almost six month old. And uh, he walked into the room and I wasn't dressed down. He said, why aren't you dressed down? And I said, well, Dr. So-and-so, I need to tell you that I was correct in what I told you um, about, oh, actually this was, the, this was the doctor after I had my baby. Sorry, I've gotten too confused. The doctor after I had my baby, I had my baby in my arms. And that's the doctor that I confronted and said, well, I told you I had an 11, I was going to have 11 pound baby. You didn't listen to me. And so therefore I need to get my records together and find a doctor who will listen to me. So sorry, that was the wrong doctor, mm -hmm. but um, I did go into him and I did have to go back to him. And I told him that I wasn't going to see him anymore. And I asked him about the near-death experience in that second um, appointment with the orthopedics. I mean, with the neurosurgeon that I had seen. And he, you know, again said, I'm not going to talk about that. So I, I don't know if he was worried about liability or, yeah. you know, if it's just personal anger inside of him or what, but um, I feel sorry for him. And, uh, you know, I don't mention his name, so nothing ever yeah, happens. Yeah, of course. You know, well, yeah, and I think problems. people are afraid because it shatters their whole paradigm, especially in the sciences. I'm really happy now to see that more and more doctors, scientists are more open to this. In fact, I often speak with my doctors about- I do too. Uh, about this yes and i'll say everybody's just, open now yeah it's interesting because i have not had i mean some might go huh that's interesting but i always say to them look i know you're a, like a scientific person and i don't know how you feel about this however i just want to say for various reasons i've brought it up um you know i've said well listen i saw a medical intuitive she had a near-death experience i interviewed her for this podcast and they're like oh what's the podcast about and I'll say near-death experiences. And I think now I get more, oh, tell me more about that. And then I'll say, I'm a medium. And they'll go, "You, that's so interesting. Even even if they're not. And also, um, I when my friend passed away recently, um, there was a detective involved because it was a freak accident and there was a lot of mystery around it. And wow. the detective called me to inform me that they had found him. And it was interesting. Well, actually, sorry, before that, he had called me to see if I'd heard from him because he was missing. And I said to him, listen, I know you're a police officer, so I'm not sure what your belief system is, but I'm a medium. I have a lot of medium friends. How would you feel about me reaching out to some of them to see if we can help you? I mean, I can't be objective, but he said, I am so open to that. And 
something else happened, which I can't share just because it was something private that his mother shared that in a spiritual experience she had, the detective completely validated her and said, yep, you saw him. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's really interesting to see more and more people open to it and, um, having more experiences with it. And as it comes out more, which is why I love that you're wearing that pin out to, to, uh, inspire discussion. And also why I do this show, because I too was not a, I was an atheist in high school. Then I became agnostic and there were times in my life where I was very atheistic in the sense that it just didn't even, I didn't think about spirituality, did not even consider God, did not consider any of this as a reality. It's stories like yours. It's also my recovery in 12 step and having to give it up to a higher power. It doesn't have to be biblical right. where I saw miracles start to happen. And I was like, maybe there's something to this, mm-hmm. but it's, it's literally watching so many near-death experiences that changed my perspective and watching mediums work. I understand that the Long Island medium and those people aren't on TV. Yes, I understand it's edited. Yes, I understand that it's uh, partly scripted, but I also know that you can't read that many people and have that many, somebody would at some point come out and say, this person researched me, or that's everything you could find on the internet. Or I'm like, is Teresa Caputo a award a, um, Oscar winning actress? I, like, how is she sobbing every time she does these readings? Are these people Oscar winning actors that can burst into tears like that? I have learned for my own self, this is a hundred percent true. I know it. And hearing stories like yours inspires me so much. And gives me faith, even when I, my faith starts to shake a tiny bit sometimes, even as a medium, I go, what if it's all, what if somehow I'm like, my dad said, well, that's really great. He said to me, how do you do this? Because I started to share with him because he's always been not an atheist, but just not spiritual. He said, so one day I was walking with him and I'm like, dad, I want to tell you about what I'm doing. And I told him and he goes, how do you, how are you doing that? And I said, well, I told him. And then I said, I don't know. I hope this gives you hope that when you die, it's not the end. And he goes, well, I don't know about that. But he said, how do you know you're not just reading someone's mind? Or I was like, if I'm reading someone's mind, isn't that cool? <laughs> I mean, like the fact that we can communicate telepathically shows that there's something going on with consciousness. Right, exactly. Well, speaking of Teresa Caputo, she came to Santa Barbara about I love this story. a month ago. And a girlfriend of mine, I didn't know she was coming. And a girlfriend of mine called me, I used to work at UC Santa Barbara in the Gewurz Graduate School of Education. So a friend of mine there called me and said, Barbara, I really want to go see her. Will you come with me? I said, sure, I'll go, I'll go. And I had never seen her on Netflix or anything else. So I didn't really know much about her. We got there and I took my business card out, my my IANS um, organization for here in Santa Barbara, my business card, and I put it on my, my leg. And I was holding it and I told my girlfriend, so I'm going to send her a message to come up our aisle so I can hand the business card to one of her videographers or her support staff that walk around with her. And this was really real. These were people that were sitting in the audience and they were filming this. They were bawling their heads off and you know, it was babies that had been killed. And, and, and actually what was interesting was my daughter went to her next um, place uh, my because I told my daughter that I had been there she went to the show that she did um, the next city that that was further north 
And I asked my daughter, did she talk with anybody that had this situation? Did she talk with anybody that had that situation? Did she talk with anybody that had that situation? And I named all the situations that she had had the night that I had watched her. There was not a single duplicate at all. But she never came up the aisle, so I never got to hand my business card to her. So my girlfriend and I drove my girlfriend home, and the next day um, we had to go, my husband and I, my husband has cancer. He has three different kinds, and he's being uh, dealt with by Stanford University's Cancer Center, and they've just been awesome. And we get angel flighted by a private pilot. You know, we'll sign up to fly us up to Stanford, which is a five and a half hour drive, and it only takes like an hour, hour and a half in the plane. And so we had to go to this little private um, called a uh, little aviation uh, fixed base operation in Santa Barbara, not the big airport part, but we had to go over and meet the little pilot over there the next morning. We walked into this little aviation's front lobby area and who is sitting on the couch but Teresa Caputo. My queen. And I walked over to her and I said, I was just at your show last night and I wanted to give your team this, but now I get to give it to you. She looks at my card and says, oh my God, near-death experience, sit down. Wants to know all about my near-death experience. We have a half an hour of chatting back and forth, one-on-one -on -one with her team listening and going, wow, wow. It was awesome. And you know, I could have never planned that. I, there were 400 people the night before, and I didn't even think about her being at that, you know, being, being able to talk with her once I left that big event. I didn't think I was going to get to talk to her, but there she is the next morning. You know, the other side pulls these fun tricks on you and, you know, does these cool things to, like, make your life be happy. So, count them and say thank you, you know, be thankful for him because that was just an awesome, awesome moment. She was so nice. I couldn't I know, believe I it. I love her. I, yeah. I'm, I told you this before, but I'm telling this again for the podcast sake. My mother and I went, I took my mom to see her uh, maybe like six months ago or something. And we, she, she was fantastic. I love her. I've seen every single one of her episodes oh, yeah. of, I have bought every season Oh my god. Because I, I mean I love her. I'm gonna have to do that. <laughs> so yes, I have dream about her all the time that we're best oh. friends. And I always and I just am like, I'm gonna meet her. I'm gonna oh. meet her. I'm going to meet her. And manifest uh, it, manifest yeah, it. I'm manifesting it. it. And I wanted to talk, uh, I just wanted to share too, be, um, because I love what you said about manifesting and how things come true. Uh it, and it's interesting because I had a really rough financial summer. I just was not getting work. I was struggling. I was having to do a lot of little jobs here and there. I'm a voice actor and I just was having a lot of reflux and problems. So I wasn't able to really work and I was getting really discouraged. And I had this opportunity to go to Nashville for Americana Fest where tons of my LA friends were going to be. Lots moved there. Lots still live in LA, but we're playing there. And I looked at my bank account. I'm like, there's like no money in there. I mean, and I'm I've re I'm just not in a financial position to go, but I just felt like I need to, I'm I'm not going to miss this opportunity for anything. I will deal with it later. So I'm there and it becomes very clear to me as I'm there, this is where I need to move. This is where my people are. I kept 
running into all these people that I know. And I was like, you're here too. Okay. And they were, people were texting me, you're in Nashville. I live here now. Did you know that? And more and more people just, it just started to feel right. So I said, spirit, God, I called on Jesus. I was like, Jesus, ascended masters. First of all, I've been around hundreds of people the last few days. Please don't let me get COVID. Well, I said it in a more really? positive way. Like <laughs> I please, I am healthy. I am, I mean, in close contact mm -hmm. with in crowded bars. And I'm like, I'm manifesting that I am well, I am healthy. Um, and, and I got so excited about moving there, talked to a lot of my friends and they're like, we're all here. It's going to, we're going to have the best time. And I said, all right, spirit, if this is where the right path for me, reveal that path to me. And I said to my friend, I right now in the 3D, it does not look as if I'm financially set up to do this. However, I am right this minute deciding that when I get back, I'm going to start making so much money and I'm going to make my millions. I am, this is happening. And I said, spirit, if that's right, let me know. And I got home. I immediately booked four voiceover jobs and I immediately got three mediumship bookings for the same week. And I was like, now you're just, because it kept happening. It was like, I texted my friend. I just booked another one. I just booked another one. I just booked another one. And, and then I said, now, God, you're just being silly. Like now you're just laughing and you know, see, told you. And I said, that's because I asked if this is right, reveal the path forward. And I'm just going to trust you. If I need to go back to LA, which is my other choice, lead me there. If I, if it's Nashville, lead me there, but either way I'm, I'm ready to receive. And just by asking, it was like, suddenly everything burst open. And then I heard from another client who said, I've got a bunch of a bunch of scripts coming up. Can you do them? And another client from like two years ago just said, can you talk? Cause I have this campaign coming up. I want to work. And I was like, this has been like the summer of crickets. You could just, that is the theme of the summer crickets. I was driving for Amazon flex. I was like scrounging together every penny. And, and all of a sudden I was like, it's, I just, it's, I'm not saying that to like be gauche and talk about money, except no, it's, it's the manifesting that's it's coming the, through. Yes. And it's so obvious. And I kept seeing one, one, one today and two, two, two and three, three, three. And I was like, you are so funny <laughs> that you're showing me, we're going to make this possible for you. We're that's opening right. this up for you. And you are not going to drive, uh, you know, for Lyft or Amazon flex oh. or whatever I was planning on doing. I was like, I'm going to go home. I said, I'm going to work every spare minute of every day, which I do anyway. Oh. Um, and then suddenly it just, everything started to pop. And so it's the Testament. It's a Testament for me to the power of spirit and That's right. setting that intention and saying, all right, I am determined and ready. And I will not accept anything less than this. Yeah. And suddenly I got my voice back. Even after being normally, when I go on vacation, I will lose my voice for a week. It's the schedule, the eating. I was around people, my voice scratchy, but it's Yay. fine. Yay. And I, so it's that I asked, give me my voice, give me this abundance, let me show me the way. And it's amazing. And so stories like yours, as I said, are magical and inspiring. And thank you also for touching on uh, domestic abuse, because I think that's something so many people live with when you talked about your husband, you know, abusing you and then apologizing. And we all think, I would never let that happen to me. I would right. never be that person. But once you're in it, I've never had physical abuse, but I've had other kinds of things like that, where a lot of abusers will be their best self until they have you, until you've moved in and you have not, you, you are dependent. And that's when they show 
their true colors. Um, that's when all their trauma comes to the surface. And they're like, now I can feel safe to be my worst self. And I've had that happen. And uh, it's really important to remember. And I also, there were times, even though I wasn't physically abused, there were times where something happened that was unacceptable to me. And I go, this is not on my list as you said, of qualities. This is actually would be in my no list. And yet he apologizes and says, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was terrible. I love you. I'm so sorry. I really, I'm, I'm here for you. And then you just overlook it and think, okay, you know, it was only this one time. And then it becomes two times. And you're like, that really wasn't very nice, but it's only five minutes out of the day. It's not the whole day. And so it becomes very comfortable and you become so accustomed to it. It just becomes your new normal. And if you're away from your family and friends in a new environment, you don't have the support system, then, and whenever anybody would come to visit me, he would act so rude and mean and snotty to the person that they would never want to come back. And sometimes they didn't even want to continue my friendship because here's this terrible person acting mean to them when they, you know, they come to visit me. So it was, and he isolated me so badly. And he also confiscated my salary and gave me a stipend every month that I could use with $25, <laughs> which doesn't even get your haircut, you know? Um, it was really a very traumatic, traumatic situation. But um, I, you know, in the ways that I found myself uh, out of there, <clears throat> there was a couple of really big blessings I want to talk about. So when I needed to leave, um, he had to go on a business trip to Canada and I took him to the airport and put him on the plane and I was ready. It was about three years after my near-death experience and I had gotten all of my private things from my grandmother and my mother's hand-me-downs all put into boxes up in the attic so that they would be ready to go. Because last time when I had, I had actually moved out from him for a year and he had confiscated my son's baby book and things from my grandmother and my mother. So to, you know, you, when you come back to me, you can have these type of thing, kind of holding them over my head. So <clears throat> I went to look at an apartment and I found, I had found four apartments that I was going to look at. Actually, I think it was five that day. And I had went to the first four and I told them I'm, you know, leaving the person and I'm, uh, it's an abusive situation and I really need to have, you know, a safe place and, and, and I only have the first month's rent. I don't have the deposit. Um, I've only been able to save up enough for the first month's rent. Will you trust me now that I will be away from him? I'll have my whole salary and I'll be able to pay you $100 a month towards the deposit till I get the whole month amount paid off. And the first four people said no, no. And the fifth person looked me in the eyes and it was the last one of the day and I needed to go pick up my daughter from preschool. And I was getting kind of panicked because, you know, I didn't have, he was going to be gone like I think a week and I needed, needed the whole week to be able to get out of there. And so he looked at me and he kind of just looked at me and then he said, yeah, you can move in. And I burst into tears in front of this guy who was going to be my landlord. And I said, why are you trusting me? The other four people today didn't trust me. Why are you trusting me? And he said, I was raised in the Netherlands during World War II. And he said, many, many Jewish people that were running away from the Nazis knocked on my parents' door when I was a young boy. And he said, my parents, every single time 
did whatever they could, whatever they had in their power to help those people that knocked on our door. Today, I'm helping you to honor my parents. So you can imagine the bond that he and I, he's an elderly man, what a nice, nice man he, he became in my life. Well, in moving into that apartment, when I was sitting on the stairs filling out the application that day, <clears throat> this elderly man came from upstairs. I heard the, the door shut upstairs and he came to the top of the stairs and he came down the stairs behind me and I turned and looked at him. I was like maybe 36 years old or something. This guy was probably in his late 80s. Actually, I think he was early 80s. And uh, he came down the stairs and he said in an kind of accented uh, voice, are you going to move in? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, good. And then he walked past me and he, he left. Well, as I lived in that apartment and moved in and um, filed a restraining order against my husband and the attorney was helping me through the divorce and I could hear that elderly man upstairs with his wife and they would kind of bicker back and forth. And I could hear them because my apartment was right downstairs below where they were kind of across the, the way. And so I could hear them. And so I said to my children, you know, I don't ever see anybody visit them. They don't seem to have anybody in their lives. Let's make a difference in their life. So I said um, to my son who was in junior high, um, why don't you sit down with Julie, the little baby who was now five years old, um, and have little drawings, like have her do little drawings so you can help her, and then go outside and pick a flower, and then sneak up the stairs and put it on their doorstep. Don't let them see you putting it on their doorstep. Just make it, let's make a difference in their life. So I did that with them about three times a week for about four or five weeks. When the man finally saw me down um, in the garage area and said, is it your children that are doing that? And I said, yeah, they want to be friends. And he said, would you like to come up after school and have cookies with us? And I said, yeah, I'd like to. So we came up there and the kids brought the crayons and they were drawing a picture while they were laying on the floor. And I was talking to the man and wife and they had never had children and they didn't have any family because they were, you know, in their 80s and their families had passed away or that whatever had happened and so they had really nobody and so they began after that day they told me their background where they'd gotten married in Casablanca and that he'd been in the French army even though he was Latvian and you know all this interesting stuff about their life <clears throat> so every time that I would go to the grocery store or the pharmacy I would call them and say, I'm heading over there. Do you need anything? And I would start picking up things for them to save them from having to, he, he was older and I didn't want him to have to drive. So she never left the apartment at all. So um, she ended up passing away uh, while they still lived in the apartment. I ended up moving out of the apartment to move in with my husband, who I'm married to now. It was just a block away from the apartment where I lived at. And so we stayed completely in contact with both of them. She ended up passing away and he lived another 10 years. And that whole entire time, we took him out to dinner on Sunday nights. We took him, we were going on a cruise. We took him on a cruise with us down to Mexico with our youngest son. Um, yeah, we just like totally, he was grandpa. grandpa. He loved my kids. He loved Victor's kids. He loved Victor. He loved me. He was just totally, my parents had already died and I just totally, we loved him so much. And 
So then he passes away. And I had actually talked to him a couple hours before he had a heart attack. And then the place that he was living at, I had moved him to a senior center place so that he could be watched over a little bit. And uh, so they called me and we drove across town. And, you know, I, I loved his, you know, kissed him after he was dead and my husband did too and we said you know we know that you're fine and you're up above and it's okay don't we will be fine dad don't worry and so then about two weeks later this attorney calls me and he goes Barbara Bartolome and I said yes and he said my, my name he said his name and he said I'm the attorney for um the person that was my dad and and he says I need you to come into my office and I need to read his will to you and I'm thinking, okay. And so I said, can I bring my husband? And he said, yes. And so we went in and he started reading the will to us. And he was giving away, you know, increments of $100,000 to different places. And I looked at my husband and said, oh my God, I, you know, he was living in a little $800 a month apartment. I didn't think he had any money. And I, we didn't think he had anything. And then, after you know the first two or three donations of a hundred thousand dollars to different places then he gave me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a quarter of a million dollars and i literally had no we had no idea that he had that no concept of it and i burst in tears and said no 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 i will not be paid for having loved him and and marie i will not be paid for that and the attorney kind of smirked at me and said, your dad really knew you well. And he pushed this piece of paper that was folded in thirds across the table at me. And it was a note from my dad. And it said, my dearest Barbara, I know that this is gonna come as a shock to you. And I want you to understand that Marie and I wanted to give you a gift because of the gifts you gave me, gave us in our lives. And therefore this is not paying you for the love that you did but it is a gift like you gave freely we give freely and so love dad you know and it was like oh my gosh so we ended up you know giving each one of our children money for college with that amount um and helping to pay off our mortgage of our house and you know it was about five years later that i was in my living room of my house and I was walking through it to wake up my son. He was in third grade at the time. It was my youngest one with my husband. It was our baby together. And um, I was walking past a big plate glass window and this ha thing happened on my head. Again, amazing stuff. It felt like somebody's hands were going like this on my head. And I stopped and thought, oh my God, am I having a stroke? And my husband was clear through the house um, back in the area where our bedroom was and I was right outside of our son's room and outside of my daughter's room and I didn't want to scream and scare the children and I reached my hands up to my head like this and and kind of felt my head and when I brought my hands down I realized that I had goosebumps all over my arms and I was just like what is happening should I sit down what's what, what what's going on am I going to have like what's going on and in the middle of my living room while I'm freaking out this big voice goes you will have a scrapbook store. I worked at the Graduate School of Education at UC Santa Barbara and loved my job. My boss loved me. We worked on campus, both Victor and I. 
I had been named an unsung heroine for all the volunteer work I had done in the community and on campus. That was going to be my be all end all job for the rest of my life. I was not going to leave. And I looked up at the ceiling and I went, God, are you talking to me? Because I don't know anything about scrapbooks and I don't know anything about retail stores. So do you have the wrong house, wrong neighborhood? I'm like, what? You know, and no answer. So I went running through the house to my husband and, you know, my husband is seven feet tall and I'm looking up at him and I said, oh my God, you won't believe what just happened to me. Blah, 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 blah. I told him what the, and he looks down at me and he goes, I think that if you got that big of a message, you should see what it's going to take to get you there. And I looked at him, I said, no, I don't want to leave the university. I don't want to do that. What are you, are you kidding me? And then I looked back up at him, waiting for him to answer again. And his mouth opened and the voice from the living room, swear to God, spoke out of my husband's mouth and said, Barbara, you're the one that received the message. And I just went, oh, and he didn't know why I was doing that. And I went and sat on the bed and I was like completely shaking and stuff. And I, he came over, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm definitely not okay. Can you fix breakfast for the kids? You know, so he went in and took care of everything. And he came back in with our little one and he was taking him to school. And, you know, they both gave me kisses. And I sat on the bed after everybody was gone. And I was like, I'm late to work. I need to call my boss. I don't know what's, what just happened. This is the most bizarre thing ever. Oh my gosh. And so I start talking to God saying, you know, why would you want me to do a scrapbook story? That makes no sense at all to me. And so then I called my boss, told him I was going to be late, got my clothes on, went to the university. I had already arranged that day to get off at noon. And I got off at noon. My boss, you know, I'd already arranged ahead of time. I went down to my car. And when I was downtown in Santa Barbara, in front of this fire station that's like about a block from my bank, this other business-like voice says in my car, I mean, like in my head, in my, in my car, you need to stop and ask about a business loan. And I'm like, in my car going, what? Who are you? Like, why are you talking to me about this? I don't even know anything about this. What's going on? So I only have a block to make a decision. I pull into the bank's parking lot. There happens to be a space available. I sit there and say in my head, you know, I don't know why you're asking me to do this, God, but uh, you know, if it is you, I'll go into the bank and I'll ask about a business loan, but it doesn't mean I'm going to have a scrapbook store. I mean, like, you know, this is pretty far fetched here. So I went into the bank. I asked this teller, who do I talk to about a business loan? She points to this guy who was sitting at a desk. I walk over to him and I introduce myself as, you know, I try to give this, I'm from the Graduate School of Education at UCSB to kind of give myself some value there, right? So then he introduces himself and he asks me to sit down and he goes, what do you want to use your business loan that you want to, you're interested in for? And I didn't want to say a scrapbook store because I thought that sounded really dorky. So I said, <laughs> art store, because, you know, scrapbooking was like, at that time was like the big deal. It was like a really big deal. So I was like a paper art store. And he goes, oh, okay. And how much do you want to borrow? And the absurdity of what I was doing struck me hysterically funny in that moment. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know how much do you think it's going to take to open a paper art store? Obviously, I had no idea what I was doing. And he looked at me and he kind of had this face like, Mrs. Bartolome, you need to approach the bank when you have a business plan in hand. 
And I said, I'm really sorry I took your time today. I think I've jumped the gun. This is just a brand new idea. I'll you know, investigate that. And thank you so much for your time. And I got up to leave and I'm walking through the center of the bank and that business-like voice goes, now wait a minute. You cannot give up that easily. You need to go back and ask someone else. And I'm in the bank and I know that I'm the only one hearing it. And so in my head, I go, you're not making this easy on me. If you could maybe show me who I'm supposed to talk to, then it might be a little bit easier. I'm headed for that exit right over there where my car is parked outside. And if you have somebody between here and there, then I welcome you to show me who it is I'm supposed to talk to. So then I'm walking out through this glass corridor of these offices that are all glass walls. And I look at the first person and they don't look at me. And I look at the second person, they don't look at me. Look at the third person, there's only four people to look at. I look at the third person, they don't look at me. The second that I look at the fourth person, it's a 32 year old guy, I've never seen him before, I don't know him. And the second I look at him, he's writing on his desk something and he goes like this. <laughs> and I actually went, oh crap, that means I have to talk to this guy. So. I didn't throw my arms up in the air, but I, I said that in my head. And I walked back to his door and I said who I was. And I said, I approached the bank a little bit early today and I think I've jumped the gun, but can you tell me what a business plan is and how I go about creating one? Is it a city college course or is it a software program I need to buy? I don't have the slightest idea how to create one. And he said, well, do you have a few minutes? Do you have your account here? And I said, yeah. He goes, can I see your ID? And I said, sure. So I handed him my ID. And I sat down and he said, you know, business plan consists of, and he starts going through the whole thing and, and I'm listening. And then he's looking at his computer while he's talking to me. And then he goes, Mrs. Bartolome, after about 10 minutes of explaining what a business plan is, he goes, can you hold on for just a moment? And I said, sure. So he walks back to cubicles and I can see him talking to a lady. They're looking at her computer. He comes back about four minutes later and I stand up and I meet him at the door and he goes, Mrs. Bartolome, you've been approved for a $250,000 loan to start your scrapbook store. And I, how much did I get from my adopted dad? $250,000. So who got that? <laughs> yeah, okay. So I like literally said, uh, he goes, do you wanna come in tomorrow and sign paperwork for that? And I said, uh, does my husband have to come in too? And he goes, yes. And I said, do you mind if I call him? And he goes, no. And I use my cell phone and I call my husband at the university and I go, you know what I was talking to you about in the closet this morning, uh, the store that I'm interested in opening? Well, I'm at the bank and they want to give me $250,000 to open that store. Are you willing to come in tomorrow and sign paperwork on that for me? And he goes, yeah, sure. What time? He didn't even question it. Thanks. He didn't. Yeah. It was just amazing. We opened the store three months later and about three months after that, I was named Business Woman of the Year for Santa Barbara, California. This is where Oprah lives. This is where Harry and Megan just moved to. There's money everywhere in Santa Barbara. And I had this cute little scrapbook store and I was Business Woman of the Year. And I know that they were planting, the other side was planting that in my life because even then I still had not talked about my near-death experience. I'd been you know, given an award at the university for all my volunteer work. I had previously had a secret clearance with the Department of Defense when I worked for a defense contractor. I had a clean background, but I hadn't really been given the kind of 
um, support that I needed to build who I was to where I didn't worry anymore about what anybody thought of me when I talked about my near-death experience. I could talk about it as freely as I wanted to, and I didn't care if anybody believed me or not. I knew that I was telling the truth. I knew that I had been businesswoman of the year. I knew that I had had that secret clearance. I knew that I was okay. It didn't matter to me anymore. I'd kind of, I had the store for six years, and then the 2008-2009 recession kind of cut the proceeds of it down really drastically because everybody stopped spending. And I closed the store gracefully and gave my main employee a new job. I got her a new job at another place in, in Santa Barbara and you know, tied up all the loose ends. And then one month later, I was invited by a doctor to go to the IONS organizations conference in San Diego, California. And that's what opened up my near-death experience. One month after I closed my store, I went to my first IONS conference. I can see how they planned everything all the way along. And mm -hmm. It was beautiful to look at it now, but when it was happening, it was like, oh my God. But we had a fun time at that scrapbook store. People still stopped me on the street in Santa Barbara and say, didn't you? Because they recognized the red hair and the tall yeah. and everything. And they didn't show in the scrapbook store. Oh my God, I love that store. So it was pretty neat. It was a pretty fun thing, but I really have, everybody needs to understand the other side is working toward your best benefit. And if you will open the door to them and be, able to accept it and get the goosebumps and freak out and you know it's okay to be a real human but they are working with you to do your best possible job here and let them do that let them do that thank you so much barbara this has been such a pleasure thank you for your beautiful stories thank you for showing up with your energy and your time and for the work that you're doing it really does make a difference and i also believe I, like I can see it in my own life now. Today, I was like, I see what you're doing, Spirit. And I love your sharing that whole story because it does just show how when you're opening, when you open the door to Spirit, I know there's something at the end. I know that there's a reason why I'm being pushed in that direction. And I can't wait to see what yep. it is. Let them push you in that direction. Let them open yeah. the doors for you. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense to you. I know. But, you know, I was like, what? Scrapbook yeah. store. I had so much fun there. There were so many times when people came in and said, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing place. Oh, I feel like I'd like to live here. There was great energy there. I had nice you know, customers and people. It was a great six years that I had a great experience. And then it built me up to where I could talk about it and not be worried about what anybody thought. And exactly. so that is a big blessing in my life. I really am thankful for yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. thank you again for being here and for being my friend yes. and for being an inspiration to me and everyone you come into contact with, no doubt. Come to Santa Barbara, not only Nashville. I'm going to. If I go to Nashville, I'm going to find you there, but yes. you got to come to Santa Barbara and visit me, okay? Oh, you know that's happening, okay, girl. Good. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll speak with you soon. Thank you okay. so much. Sounds Bye. good. Thank you. Bye, everybody.